Today is going to be a wonderful day, isn't it? I mean, you get to start it off in church. Then at about 4 o'clock, you get to see the Cowboys lock up the division today. Oh, man, what a good day this is going to be. Amen. (laughs) Praise the Lord. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking to every heart today. We give you all honor and all praise in Jesus' name. Amen. The incarnation of Christ is the greatest event perhaps in human history. As you're turning to Matthew chapter 1, one person wrote this. Think about it for a moment. God became a man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk just like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. How great is the incarnation of Christ on every level? It is the greatest. That's what this series is all about. It's week two of our series, The Greatest. We're looking at the timeless transformational truths of the Christmas story. And to the chagrin of perhaps many of you, I want to begin by reading an endless list of begets. Matthew chapter number one. Are you ready? This is probably a portion of the Bible that none of you have ever read or have skipped over many times. Matthew chapter one, beginning in verse one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, Judah begot Perez and Zara by Tamar, and if I were taking notes, I'd underline Tamar, Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab, and Aminadab begot Nation, and Nation begot Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Rahab's another name I would underline. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king, and David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. I would underline wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa, and Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram, Joram begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, Ahaz begot Hezekiah, Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, Ammon begot Josiah, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begot Abiud, and Abiud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azar, and Azar begot Zadok, and Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Iliad, and Iliad begot uh, Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. When we read this genealogy, most of us think this is just filler in the Bible. I mean, why is it even there? I mean, why does God have to trip us up with names we can't pronounce and uh, names we'll never use? And by the way, if you're having a baby, never look amongst this list to name your child. I mean, why, why in the world does God give us this, this long line of begets? And 
I hope today that I'm going to change your mind from it being filler and boring to it being brilliant in every way. But let me read the rest of the text. Verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to make Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. You might recall last year I preached a message, it's not what it looks like. Some of you are going through situations right now and you think, where's God? You know, how come, how come his promise is not true? How come it's not turning out the way he said? I want to encourage somebody and remind you it's not always what it looks like. That even when it looks like God has ducked out, really God is just kind of waiting for the perfect time to make himself known in your life. And so be encouraged. It says, and she will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I want to talk to you today from the Christmas story on what I think is a brilliant title. Are you ready for it? Ancestry.com. That's pretty good right there. Come on. Ancestry.com. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you speak to our hearts? Would you make this message relevant and real to every person. We thank you. And everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. We often forget the magnificence of the title ascribed to Jesus Savior. In two of our uh, Gospels, that's exactly how the angel introduces the birth of Jesus to the world. Um, in one Gospel, he says he's the light of the world, and that's the primary focus, the Gospel of John. And in a couple of other Gospels, one Gospel here that we just read where the angel says to Joseph, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then, of course, in Luke's Gospel, where the shepherds are out in the field uh, keeping watch, and the angel appears and says, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. My goal today is to deepen your understanding of how great a Savior we have by looking at what most of us think is filler in the Bible. And when we come to the text that we refer to as the genealogy of Jesus in cultural context, it is more than a genealogy. In cultural context, it is the strongest kind of form of historical record that can be given to us. What is the reason? why God begins not just uh, the gospel of Matthew with a genealogy, but the whole of the New Testament, which exposes to us and tells us the story of what Christ has done for us with a genealogy. Is it to bore us? Is it because it has no value? Why trip us up in this endless list of begats? Because God is letting us know something that from a cultural point of view is extremely important right from Jump Street. And that is by setting it in a genealogy, he's trying to tell us that Jesus' story is not a fairy tale. It doesn't begin with once upon a time. It begins with a record of how the birth of Jesus actually happened and a record that is detailed and a, and a record that is precise and a record that at the time and perhaps even now you could go back into and you could look up these people and you could find that they were real live, living, breathing people. And the point that God is trying to make is that Jesus is not a fable. Jesus is not a fairy tale. The gospel is not 
out some good advice. The gospel is good news. It's not a suggestion of how we ought to come away with a moral to the story. It is a report of what Jesus has done for you and I, and that is to come to save our soul. The purpose of the genealogy is that we would know that God indeed did become a man, that immortality did become mortal, so that we who are mortal might become immortal, that divinity did couch himself in humanity. This is to set in the strongest cultural terms that this is a fact, that this is not a fable in every way. It is a historical testament to a transformational truth that Christianity is not just a place to get some inspiration and guidance for life. And that what we, for the most part, have boiled Christianity down to today. Think about why most people, you know, uh, read the Bible, why most people go to church. Most people go, they want some inspiration for life. How can, how can I live a better life than I'm living now? And I love that. And I believe that with God, you can live your best life now. I believe that. I'm not trying to, to, to make any type of disparaging remark against that. But Christianity is so much more than that. Even though it is all that, it is first a message that you and I need to be saved from our sins. And that God in Christ Jesus became a man to do exactly that. And so as we come to the story and we, God presents this genealogy, remember he's saying it is not advice, it's news. It's not fantasy, it's history. It's not fiction, it's fantastic. The purpose of the genealogy is to put our faith on solid ground. To let us know that this is a launching point from which you can base your entire life on. Oftentimes we think that when it comes to faith, faith ought to be blind. But I believe that the Bible is very careful in letting us know that this is not blind trust. But rather this is something that you can, you can kind of hang your, 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 your life on, if you will. And so as we come to the genealogy, it exposes so much to us. And one of the great truths that it exposes to us is that he is our greatest savior because he shares our struggle. Ever go through something in life and, and feel alone? Has that ever happened to anybody? Kind of feel like, you know, is there, is there anybody out there who, who understands me? Is there anybody out there who can relate? You, you begin to talk to like, you know, those that are closest to you and you think, you know, they're the, the shoulder that you can cry on, but, but even they don't get it, even though they can't relate to it. And, and, and there's something that happens when you, when you're so close to somebody is, is that, um, you, you know, sometimes they, they don't get your perspective and there's things that stand in the way and you feel alone and, and, and other people come along into your life and they try to encourage you because they see you're going through something and they say things like, it's going to be all right. Like, like that's magic. And, and you know, it, it doesn't help much a lot of times when people say that. Or they say things like, I'm praying for you, which we know is one of the Christian lies. You know, that's a Christian lie, right? And here's the reason why it's a Christian lie. Because most people, maybe they have a good, you know, intentions at the moment. But most people, when they say, I'm going to pray for you or I'm praying for you, aren't really praying for you. And what they're, what they're doing is they're using a Christian colloquialism or a Christian expression to let you know that they care. But, but I, I don't believe that most people actually go back into their prayer closet and lift you up. Now, some people will, and those people are treasures. But the fact of the matter is, most people don't. So when you hear, I'm praying for you, that doesn't really work. And they say things like this to you. They say things like, well, let me know if you need anything. 
You know, you know what they're banking on? They're, they're banking on the fact that you're really not going to let them know if you need anything, right? It's just kind of one of those expressions. But very rarely does somebody call somebody up in the middle of what they're going to. Remember you said, I can call you if I need anything? Well, well I'm calling you because I, I need something right now. And so that doesn't really help much at all. And then there are other people who come along and they give you a shoulder to cry on. And, they, you know, they, 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 they kind of, you know, are compassionate. But it seems like oftentimes when we're going to challenging situations and when we're we're struggling along that there's really not people that we can relate to and so we feel alone we feel we feel isolated we feel like i just need somebody who can who can fellowship with me in my suffering and then along comes somebody who has been through what you're going through and suddenly when that person begins to speak into your life, there is an unusual power to comfort you there. Suddenly when that person speaks, they say things that you're going through that, that let you know they completely understand exactly what you're going to. And when they share their opinions, you listen because their opinions are not empty, but rather their opinions are born from the exact same set of circumstances. And so when they tell you that, 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 that it's going to be all right that that kind of resonates because their life is a testimony of the fact that they've been where you are right now and they made it out through the other side something happens when somebody's been through what you're going through so you you're in a abusive relationship and somebody comes along and you feel stuck in that abusive relationship but somebody comes along who's made it out of an abusive relationship and suddenly you feel like there's hope again for your life or, or maybe you're hung up in an addiction right now and, and you feel like you know no matter how you try no matter how much you know you give yourself to fighting against that thing you find yourself falling back into the addiction over and over again but somebody comes along who used to be addicted to the exact same thing and you see now they're set free and they've been free for a number of years yet suddenly there's hope for you again or you look at a marriage and you feel stuck in your marriage and you feel like the love is gone and it's dead and so on but somebody comes along who used to have the same kind of feeling in their marriage but now when you look at the two of them they look like newlyweds again and they've been happily married for 25 years and so suddenly you feel like your marriage has got hope there's a power that is released to comfort when somebody comforts you who's been through what you're going through and so when we come to scripture we see things like this, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This is something that is absolutely amazing. Here's what God is saying, that there is a special power to comfort when you've been through what somebody else is going through. Matter of fact, can I tell you, this is one of the ways that you and I can punch the devil in the teeth. Anybody ever feel like punching the devil in the teeth? I don't know about you, but there are times in my life where I just wish I could knock every tooth that he has. I don't know if he has teeth, but, but you know what I mean. I, I just want to just load up. And, you know, sometimes you feel so help, helpless to load up against the enemy. And, and one of the things that I found, I can get my, how I can get my aggression out on the enemy. 
Isn't that wonderful to be able to just, you know, put your, put your hate and, and put your aggression and your anger out on the right person? The right person to get mad at is not God. That's the trick of the enemy. He tries to get us to put our, our anger at God. But I found out here's a way that we can get it out on the devil. Find somebody who is going through what God has brought you through and you punch the devil in the teeth every single time. Matter of fact, this is one of the keys to victory that I've used in my own life. Every time I go through something that is difficult, and here's what I actually do. I actually say over and over again to myself, I say, devil, when I get through this, when God brings me through this declaration of victory, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When God brings me through this, I just want you to know that I'm going to make the area that you attacked me in part of what I do to minister to people. All you're going to do, you might knock me down, but when I get up, watch out. You might keep me bound for a season, but when God sets me free, watch out. Because all you're going to do is make me more dangerous for the kingdom of God. You punch the devil in the teeth. Every time you comfort somebody who has been through what you're going through, there's a power that is in that. But listen, listen, listen what it says, the scripture we just read, and then I'll come back to the genealogy. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation. God comforts us. Now, If you don't understand the genealogy, if you don't understand that the purpose of the genealogy is to let us know that God became human, that he didn't stay isolated, but rather he became part of humanity, this verse can have no effect on you. And the reason why it could have no effect on you is because we already talked about if somebody tries to comfort you, who hasn't been through what you're going through, that comfort is useless. But something happens when the person trying to comfort you can comfort you from a place of experience. And the purpose of the genealogy is to let us know that God did not choose immunity to the human race and the sufferings that you and I go through, but rather God chose humanity. And so when God comforts us, he doesn't comfort us from a distant place of not being able to understand. He comforts us from an experienced place where he can actually relate to everything that you and I are going through. And so the genealogy is not just about the Almighty appearing on earth as a helpless baby. It's not just about that God was unable to talk and lie and stare and wriggle and make noises and how to learn how to walk. It's not about that. But it's also about the fact that Jesus knows intimately what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be thirsty. He knows what it's like to have no place to lay his head. He knows what it's like to be a refugee. He knows what it's like to be innocent yet considered guilty. He knows what it's like to feel betrayed. He knows what it's like to have his father say no to his prayers. If this cup can pass from me, nevertheless not my will but thine be done. He knows what it's like to feel abandoned by God in the middle of your most desperate situation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to feel pain and sorrow. He knows what it's like to experience the loss of a loved one. And so when Jesus became a human, he became a human, yes, first and foremost, and we're going to talk about it in a minute, to save us, but also so that he can share in our struggle, so that he can know what we're going through. Dorothy Sayers, 
a British essayist and novelist. She said something that is not entirely theologically sound, but her point is rock solid. She said this. She said, the incarnation means that for whatever reason, God chose to let us fall and to suffer and to be subject to sorrows and, and death. He has nonetheless had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritation of family life and the cramping restriction of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and suffered in infinite pain all for us and thought it well worth his while. Her point is simply this. God did not choose immunity from human suffering. He chose humanity. He chose to feel everything that you and I feel or experience. And this is why scriptures like Hebrews 4 mean so much. For we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. Here's what it means. It means that every time you get poked, he says, ouch. It means that every time you hurt, he hurts along with you. It means that every time something happens to you, he genuinely and sincerely feels that thing. Much like a parent does when their child suffers. By the way, I don't mean to disparage anybody that doesn't, don't have children. But can I tell you that when you don't have children, you lack an understanding of one of the aspects of God. That you can't get any other way. But suddenly you have kids and you realize something that, that, that God has been trying to tell us all along. And that is that, that, that when your kids hurt, you hurt more. I don't know. I never knew how it was hard to hurt more than somebody who's actually going through the particular thing. But the fact of the matter is when you have children, you understand that. And when you understand that, you understand God. And you understand what it means that he is a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmity. That it actually hurts him more when we go through. He can relate. And because he can relate, verse 16 says... Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What's he saying? Come boldly even after you've been tainted with temptation, he understands. Come boldly when you're overwhelmed with depression, he understands. Come boldly when you are crumbling under the financial pressure, he understands. Come boldly when life bites and life hurts and life hits, he understands. See, something happens when you see somebody going through what you've been through. Something different happens. When you see something, somebody going through something that you haven't been through, here's what we do. We make it like what they're experiencing isn't that bad. Or that they should get over it quick. Have you ever done that before? I know why they're making a big deal about that. I mean, just, just come on, just get over it already. Have you ever done that before? Maybe you didn't have the courage to say it because most of us don't really have the courage to be transparent. So, so what we do is we just say it in our heart or we say it to somebody else. And, you know, we bring somebody through the, to, to the grinding, you know, of, of judgment when they're going through something that we think they should be able to get over easy. Right? But when somebody's going through something that you've been through, guess what happens? You want to give them mercy and you want to give them 
grace, don't you? you when, when, when you see somebody going through what you've been through, you have this, this pull toward helping them, don't you? All of a sudden, you're like, you know, I know that everybody thinks that they should be able to make easy decisions, but I understand what it's like to have your mind so overwhelmed from what you're going through that you can't make an easy decision. So I'm going to help them even with that easy decision. And I understand what it's like to not be able to get up, and so I'm going to help them to be able to get up in this situation. And I understand why they're depressed. And so even though nobody else understands anything, it's trivial and easy, I'm going to be there to cheer them up. Suddenly there is a mercy and there is a grace or a favor, a pull to want to help. And when we understand that God chose not immunity, I'm preaching good right now, but God chose humanity, we understand that there is a pull, a pull. To give us mercy and to grant us grace whenever we go through what we're going through because God has gone through the same exact thing. And so when everybody else thinks your situation is trivial, God says, let me help right now. God says, let me give them some grace right now. God wants to intervene in that situation because he shares in our struggles. That's why he's the greatest savior second reason why he's the greatest savior is because, and we see this in the genealogy, he satisfies the longing of our heart. And I don't mean this from a, you know, an intellectual point of view. I don't mean this from a, you know, uh, we all have this Jesus-sized hole in our heart that only God can fill. I believe that, but that's not what I mean by this. The fact that Matthew begins with the historical record of Jesus' birth Thus separating it from fable or fairy tale is absolutely necessary for us to understand or experience true satisfaction in our souls. Let me explain it to you this way. How many loves fairy tales? Really? I'm, I'm shocked that only some of you do. How many loves fictional, great fictional stories? Right? Sleeping Beauty, you all know Sleeping Beauty. Cinderella, you all know Cinderella. You like, you like those? Amazing how they were written so many years ago, but we all still know them. We all still read them. I mean, if you don't like those, maybe, maybe I could just modernize it a little bit. How many likes, like, I know this is like maybe not Christian enough for you, Harry Potter. Anybody like Harry Potter, you know, right? If you don't like Harry Potter, maybe Lord of the Rings, anybody like, because that's kind of Christian in some sense. You know, how so? Because Tolkien was the one who kind of wrote those stories. And if you don't know who Tolkien was, Tolkien was the one who led C.S. Lewis to the Lord. C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest Christians of all time. And so we like that. And if you don't like Harry Potter and you don't like Lord of the Rings, anybody like Thor? Right? Anybody, any, any, anybody like the Avengers? Anybody like the Avengers? You know, see, see when, we, when we look at... The, the impact of fairy tales and, and, and fiction stories. What happens to us is, is we learn that there, there's something about these stories that pull us to them. They're box office hits. They're passed down from one generation to the next. We all know that these fiction stories are not factually true, yet they seem to fulfill a longing in every human heart. A longing to experience the supernatural. A longing to escape death. A longing to know a love that we could never lose. A longing to not age but live long enough to realize our dreams. A longing to fly. A longing to communicate with non-human beings. Anybody ever get fascinated when you're watching these fictional stories? They talk to trees and the trees talk back. It's like, wow. 
You know, and if you're really nuts, you start walking in the forest and you go, hello, Mr. Tree. You know, but there's, there's, this, there's this longing, right, that these things would, would come alive and, and that there would be another realm that is, that is real to us. And, and there's this longing in our heart to, to triumph over evil and that death should not be the end. These, long, these themes, which are the basis for every fairy tale or fictional story, connect with something deep within every human heart. Male, female, rich, poor, black, white. It doesn't matter. American or immigrant. It it doesn't matter. Even though we know they are not true, the messages behind these stories we feel are true or at least ought to be true. For instance, Beauty and the Beast is not true, but there ought to be a love that can be so real that it breaks us out of our beastliness. Sleeping beauty is not true, but there ought to be a prince who can break us out of the sleeping enchantments that life lulls us into. We know these stories aren't true, and our minds and intellects say that we shouldn't believe them, and to believe them is escapism from reality, but our heart can't stop believing in them, because deep within our souls, we know they ought to be true. And then along comes Christmas, and the Christmas story. And it kind of seems like another fairy tale. Jesus' incarnation. Someone from a different world breaks into ours. Has miraculous powers. He can calm storms. He can heal people. He can raise others from the dead. An enemy puts him to death. All hope is over. But finally, he rises from the dead. And he saves everyone. Another fairy tale. But Matthew comes along. And he doesn't begin the Christmas story with a star and a manger and shepherds and, and, and wise men. He begins the story with this one begot that one, begot this one, begot that one, begot this one, begot that one, begot this one, begot that one. And he comes all the way down and he gets to this man named Jacob. And he said, and Jacob begot Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, from whom the Christ, the Savior, came. And what Matthew is trying to tell us is that even though it may sound like another fairy tale, this This one is not another fairy tale. This one is actually anchored in reality. And Matthew is trying to explain to us something that is profound. And that is that everything in our heart that that we are told by our intellect is escapism. It's not really escapism. It is awakeism. What God is trying to do is let us know that indeed the supernatural is real. That indeed there is another world. That someday you and I will fly away. That we will conquer death and the grave. That we will live forever that there is life beyond now. He's, he's a savior who satisfies the longing of our human heart so much so that in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11, the Bible tells us that God has planted eternity in the hearts of every human being. There's a reason why you'll spend $20 on a movie ticket to go see the next Avengers. There's a reason why you'll bring your whole family and everybody will love it and talk about it and can't wait to see it again and then buy it out on DVD after it comes out the next time. There's a reason why. There's a reason why you will tell your kids about Cinderella. There's a reason why you will tell your kids about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, even though nowadays they don't want to talk about it because he's getting bullied too much. There's a reason why you will do that. It's because our Savior satisfies the longing 
of our hearts. The last reason I want to share with you today that he is the greatest savior is because he has saved us from our sin. When we come to Matthew, it's almost like Matthew has a clear departure from the Christmas story, right? It's like, well, 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 where's the animals? What about the star? How come no wise men? You know, I mean, what about the shepherds? I mean, this is the Christmas story. The Christmas story is all about the manger and the animals and no room in the inn. And Matthew kind of just, just skips all that. And can I tell you that in Matthew skipping all that, I believe Matthew captures the essence of the Christmas story, perhaps better than any other of the gospel writers. You see, what appears to be simply a genealogical record is not that it's more than that. In biblical times, this was a resume. In biblical times, your clan and the people who you were connected to and, and, and the people who were in your pedigree and your family, that was your resume. It was a way of saying to the world, this is who I am. And just like people today do on their resume, they tinkered with their genealogical resume. They left out all the crazy aunts and, and nut, nutty uncles. They didn't, they didn't want them to be part of the genealogy, genealogical record. Matter of fact, if somebody in their family was a criminal or somebody in their family was a rank sinner, they'd, they'd leave them out. They'd, they'd skip them over. And what they wanted to do in the genealogical record is they wanted to present to the entire world, this is who I am. Look at how great I am. I've got these people in my pedigree, and I, I, I'm blue-blooded. I'm an aristocrat. I come from high stock, and that's who I really am. And so when you come to the record of Jesus, you find a different kind of resume. For instance, when you come to the, the record of Jesus, the resume of Jesus, you find, notice I had you underline five women. You thought I was just saying underline that, underline that. You thought I forgot about that. You thought I was just, just incoherent and you know, not going to come. I had you underline that and underline that and underline that. And here's why, because in, in almost every, if not all of the genealogical records in those times, you won't find any women. And the reason why you won't find any women is because women were gender outsiders. In Bible times, it was considered that the man was through whom the bloodline came. That is true to the extent that it is the man who carries with them the ability to pass, pass on sin. Did you all know that? Let me just divert for just a second here. There's a reason why Jesus could have no earthly father. It's because he would then be tainted by sin. Because it is the man that passes on the sin. And there's an even greater spiritual truth in that. The impact that a father has on a family. The impact that a father has on a family is profound. And so in Bible times, they would not include the women because they were gender outsiders. They were thought to be less than. So much so that rabbis would teach their pupils to pray prayers that begin like this. Lord, I thank you that I'm not a woman. But yet when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, you find five gender outsiders that are included in the genealogical record. If you press it a little bit further, of those five, three of them are racial outsiders. Three of them are Gentiles. In Bible times, Gentiles were, were considered to be unclean. You couldn't hang around Gentiles. They weren't allowed in the temple for worship because they were considered to be racially unclean. But yet when we come to the genealogy of Jesus, we don't only find gender outsiders, but we also find racial outsiders in the genealogy of Jesus. 
And then when you look into each of these people that are mentioned here, we not only find gender outsiders and racial outsiders, but we find moral outsiders that are in the genealogical record of Jesus. For instance, verse number three says, Judah begot Perez and Zara by Tamar. Does anybody know who Tamar is? Most don't. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. She tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her. And so in the genealogical record of Jesus, we find a record purposefully and intentionally placed there so that we would remember that in Jesus' past was incest. The sordid details all come to mind when the writer carefully puts Tamar in the lineage. If you jump down just a few verses, you find in verse number five, Salmon begot Rahab. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Who is Rahab? She was a prostitute. She was not somebody who you want on your resume. You don't walk into a job, or maybe you do, and you don't walk into a job going, you ought to hire me because uh, one of my good aunts is a prostitute. But she's in the genealogical record of Jesus. And then you come to verse number six, and it's almost like God changes from the, the sordid details of sin to people who have good pedigree. And it's almost as if God says, okay, I told you about these people that are in here, but now let me give you somebody that ought to make you like me and ought to make you believe that I'm the Savior. His name is David, and David is in the genealogy. And notice what it says, and Jesse begot David the king. And automatically our minds flip to the giant slayer, the shepherd boy, who all of a sudden became Israel's finest king and was a warrior of warriors. But the Bible writer is careful to check us. And he says, no, 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 no. That's not why David is in this genealogy. That's not why David is in this resume. Because it goes on and says, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Who was she? She was Bathsheba. She was, she was the one who David had an adulterous affair with. And so what the Bible is trying to communicate to us is in this list of people are, are people of incest and, and people of prostitution. And now someone who is an adulterer, but not just an adulterer, the worst kind of an adulterer possible if there is a worst kind of adulterer. He said, David didn't just sleep with any woman. He slept with his best friend's wife. He saw bathing out there. Uriah was one of his mighty men. Uriah was one of the guys that was standing by David's side as Saul chased him into the different caves. And he was there to, to encourage David and stand by David and make sure that nothing happened to David. He was there and he went without for the benefit of David. He was, he was David's right-hand man. And yet, when David had the opportunity to sleep with his wife, guess what David did? David slept with his wife. He impregnated his best friend's wife, had a son whose name was Solomon. And then to make sure his best friend didn't find it out so that David could have a cover-up. David sent him out to the front lines of battle and had him killed. He's in the genealogy of Jesus. On the resume of the Savior, we find incest and prostitution and adultery and murder. And guess what they all are? They all are part of the family of Jesus would you put that kind of information down on your resume? 
you know, you're trying to get a new job and you, you have to give a reason for, for why you, you left the last job. Well, left the last job because I was stealing from the register the whole time. Oh, what about this one? Why, why'd you leave this one? Well, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. I just slept with the, with the boss's wife. Can you believe he got mad at that? I mean, he was doing what he was supposed to be doing as a man. I wouldn't be having it like that now. Would you put that things on your resume? No. You would fudge and you would leave them off. But on the resume of Jesus, they're there. And can I tell you one of the reasons why they're there? They're there because it shows us how authentic the historical record is because it's not trying to get you to believe something that is not true. It is not, it is not advice. There is no moral to this story. It is a report of not what we can do to save ourselves, but what God has done to save each and every one of us. And here is the big bang in the genealogical record is that Jesus had all these people Sinful people, incest and, uh, and adultery and murder and affairs and all this kind of stuff as part of his family. Here's the message. Jesus came to save every kind of person, all people, no matter what kind of sin they have committed. And he came to save them and bring them into his very own family and give them a new lease on life. He is the greatest savior because he came to save us from our sin. And here's what. The writer wants us to know. He's wanting us to know that at a time in America where Jesus is above all other things, sometimes a healer and sometimes our provider, and sometimes we call him the Rose of Sharon and the Lily of the Valley and El Shaddai and Elohim and Yahweh and the friend that sticks closer than a brother ever present help in time of trouble, a protector, the great I am. We call him wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. The writer of Matthew is saying, don't forget to call him who he came to be. Don't forget to celebrate who he really is. And that is Savior, the one who saved us from our sins. That is the essence and the message of Christmas. See, he's our Savior. He saved us from our sin. He saved us from sin's power. He saved us from sin's penalty. He saved us from sin's pronouncement of guilt and shame. And he gave us his pardon. He gave us his power. He gave us his proclamation. And now we are forgiven. And now we are justified. And now we are righteous. And now we are cleansed. And now we are new creatures. And now we are royal priesthood. And now we are sons and daughters of God. And now we are part of heaven's family. And now we are heaven bound. And now we are blessed born and now we are the more that conquers and now we are not flesh begotten but God begotten and now we are not born of water but of the spirit and now we have a new lease on life he is the greatest savior of all he is the savior the savior the savior the savior let's worship him right now as our
when we come to the Christmas message, we can miss the essence of it unless we do two things. And you can remain standing. I'm going to close. Unless we do two things. And one of them is harder to do than we think it is. The, the only way that you can capture the essence of the Christmas message is to admit that you're a sinner. If you don't come to that place, you will miss the essence of the Christmas message. It's the reason why so many in our world participate in Christmas but miss what Christmas is about. Christmas is a wonderful secular holiday. The world participates. They go shopping. They have family over. They buy gifts. They give. They even do nice things like give to those in need and help those out that have challenges. They go to the stores and even corporations participate in Christmas. You go into stores and you hear over the loudspeakers Christmas carols. Listen carefully what they say. One of them says, born to give them second birth. As people are walking through the stores, are the corporate powers that be actually saying, I hope they hear that. I hope they get that. What that means, born, born to give them second birth. The reason why we're, the reason why we're playing this music is because we want an atmosphere of the Holy Spirit to sweep over Macy's so that people will get saved. Or are they just participating in Christmas but missing the essence? They're participating and missing because they don't, they haven't done what's very difficult to do. Admit that you're a sinner. How so? How so? Well, think about this for a moment. Under the tree, there are two presents left. Your spouse goes over and gets them and gives you the first and you excitedly open it up. It's a book on, on dieting. And you know, it's Christmas and so you don't want to be rude. Oh, wow. And we can do this together. <laughs> but then she hands you the second book, or he hands you the second book. And by the way, if you're a man, don't ever try that. You, you learn, that's not going to be good. He or she hands you the second book. And there's a book on how to overcome selfishness. A dieting book and a book on how to overcome selfishness. In order for you to receive those gifts, it's very difficult. Because you have to admit that you're fat and obnoxious. And who wants to admit that they're fat and obnoxious? And along comes the angel and he says this to Joseph in our text. He says, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. God is going like this. Here's a gift. It's a savior. Oh, yeah, yeah. If I get that gift, I'm going to have a great life now, right? Yeah, I like that. I like that. I like that. Give me that gift. Give me that gift. If I, if I take that gift, that, that means that all of a sudden life is going to go exactly the way I want. I'm going to have that gift. This is a gift that's going to give me inspiration and motivation. And I'm going to have the best life that I ever can. Give me, I want that gift. You're missing the essence of Christmas. It's here's the gift. He's a savior. He came for sinners. To receive the essence of the gift, you have to admit your flaws. You have to admit your failures. You have to admit that you can't do it by yourself. You can't save yourself. And so it's not easy. That's what God is calling us to. And the second thing you have to do, because some of you might be saying, well, I've already accepted Jesus as my, my Savior, and I, and I get it, and I get it. I know I'm a sinner, and I'm saved by grace, and that's I need that. But the second thing you need to do 
is you need to submit to his sovereignty. Because notice what the angel said to Joseph. He said, you shall call his name Jesus. He didn't say, what would you like to call him? He didn't say, Joseph, why don't you give me the names that, you know, you've read in your little baby book there. And we'll, we'll discuss them and talk about them. And so he, here's what he said. He said, you shall. He said, no option here. This is what you have to call him. And this was so significant because in Bible times, the man, the patriarch of the family had the right and it was expected to name the children. And it was a sign of his control over the family. And here's what the angel comes along and says. He says, you don't, you got to understand something, Joseph. That, that you don't get to control this Savior. You don't get to call the shots. You don't get to worship him on your terms. You don't get to, to name him. You don't get to say, and I need you to do this, and I need you to do that, and I need you to do the other thing. That aren't, that's not the terms of this particular covenant relationship. The term of this covenant, here's how you enter into it, is you, you admit that you're a sinner, but then you turn over full control to him, and you say, I no longer get to call the shots to my life anymore, but I, I lay them down, and I say, Lord, you're in charge. Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, how high do you want me to jump? How low do you want me to go? How low do you want me to serve? It's a relinquishment of control. And can I tell you that there are many saved people who have not yet made that decision. They received him under the farce that his primary purpose was to give them the life that they wanted now. I love that about God. Again, I believe that about God. But let's not confuse who he came to be.